Hello, I'm Pastor Zach Hoffman, and I'm the pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Gainesville, Georgia, where we seek to know Christ and love one another. We do this by witnessing faithfully, transforming our homes into places where the Word of God dwells, and by investing in the communities around us. We hope that you enjoy this podcast, and if you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning, our service times are at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. God's blessings. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Our sermon text today comes from Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Be on your guard and take care against all kinds of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There's a play, and I'm not going to tease you about the title. This is the real title. The title of this play is called Hand to God. Hand to God. I promise. It's a real title of a play. And one night while this play was running, the actors were on stage, all the lines were being read back and forth. Two characters were dialoguing between one another. There was a man who walked into the audience that night, and suddenly he finds himself crawling on the stage. He's not supposed to be crawling on the stage. The actors didn't know that he was going to be crawling on the stage. It wasn't in the script. There was no plan for this. In fact, when the man came in, he didn't even know that he would end up here. But while the play is going on, this man is crawling on the stage. He's trying not to be seen by people. He's trying to be subtle, but it's a distraction. The actors can see him out of the corner of their eyes, and the whole audience is looking at this man, wondering what is going on, because it doesn't seem to fit what's happening in the play. Well, as the man is crawling, he has... In one hand, a cell phone, and in the other hand, a charging cable. You see, while he was in the play, or while he was watching the play, his phone had died, and he spotted on the set an outlet that wasn't being used by anybody. So he decided to try and sneak up on the stage and plug his phone into the outlet so that it could charge, so he'd be back to life by the time the play was over. Unfortunately for him, it wasn't a real outlet. It was just a part of the set. And so the man continued to hold on to a dead phone as he was kicked out of the play. (laughs) Our possessions can interrupt our discipleship of Jesus. Jesus was teaching a crowd of hundreds, even thousands of people who had gathered before him. And he was telling them things like this. Things like, what you say in the dark will be said in the light. And what you whisper in rooms be proclaimed from rooftops. And he's saying things like, do not be afraid, for you are worth more than many sparrows. And things like, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God in heaven. And as he's teaching the crowds things like this, things about how to live and and what to expect from God and, and, and even how to die, there's a man in the crowd and he's getting agitated. Because he's got a problem, and none of what Jesus is saying is addressing that problem. And he feels like time is running out. Jesus might go on to the next village or the next place, and so this is his only shot. So forget about what anybody else thinks about him. Forget about what even his own brother thinks about him. He reaches out, grabs his brother's arm, and kind of lifts it up in the air. And at the same time, with his other arm, he's raising his hand. And he's saying, teacher, teacher, tell my brother to to divide the inheritance with me. Go ahead, tell him. Tell him. (laughs) And Jesus says to him, Man, who made me arbiter and judge between you? Jesus wasn't that kind of estate lawyer. 
In fact, if this man had been following Jesus, he would know that. And if we had been reading through the Gospel of Luke, we would have already come across another story that tells us that. In Luke chapter 9, there's a story about a man who comes up to Jesus and he says, let me follow you. I want to be your disciple. But first, let me go home and tell my family goodbye. And Jesus says to him, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. The word of Jesus is like this thin, yet surprisingly strong blade that can insert itself between a man's heart and his love for possessions. Separate the two. There's a movie that I watched at a very young age, and whenever you hear the title of this movie and who directed it, you're going to understand exactly what it was that broke my sense of humor made it so dark and twisted as it is before you now. So at a very young age, it's my parents' fault, it's their fault, um, I was introduced to Mel Brooks. Some of you know who he is, Mel Brooks, and, and there's this really old Mel Brooks movie, it's one of my favorites. Um, the other favorite that I have, I can't really quote from, Blazing Saddles, but there's another one, Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein, it's an old black and white movie. And I remember the opening scene to this movie, there's a man who sneaks into a crypt and there in the middle of the crypt is a coffin. The coffin, of course, is covered with a lid. But the thief removes the lid off of that coffin. And inside of the coffin is a mostly decayed corpse, almost a skeleton-like person laying there in the coffin. But the skeleton is clutching something. He's clutching a box. And he's holding it to his chest like this. The thief comes in. He wants that box. So he reaches into the coffin and he pulls on the box. And the corpse pulls down on the box. <laughs> and he lifts it up again, and the corpse pulls down again. He lifts it up again, and the corpse pulls down again on the box. The corpse doesn't want to let go. And the scene is funny, and it's ridiculous for obvious reasons, right? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous because why would a corpse be holding on to something? And even if it was holding on to something, why would a corpse have enough strength to pull it back? And, and lastly, what good are possessions in dead hands? Are your possessions in living hands? Jesus tells a story about a man who's rich and he's already doing quite well and he has a harvest that's plentiful. And so he says to himself, you know what? I'm going to take this. I know what I'll do. I'm going to, I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. I'm going to store stuff up in there and then I'm just going to tell myself to relax. I've got it made. Everything's fine now. I'll just eat, drink, and be merry. Notice when you hear that story, the chorus of I, 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 and my, my, my. It's funny how when the man is talking to himself, there's no mention of anybody else. There's no mention of his family if he has any. And lacking that, there's no mention of his community. And, and even perhaps lacking that, there's no mention of anybody in need at all. And we could go all the way back before we even talk about other relationships, and notice that he doesn't even mention God. Greed isolates a person. Greed cuts a person off from their family, their friends, their community. Greed is a hell unto itself. 
And to get an idea of just how much of a hell that is, we can actually go and visit the famous French Emperor Napoleon in hell. <laughs> I've been quoting a lot of C.S. Lewis lately, especially if you've been in Bible study, and so here we go again. There's a book that he writes called The Great Divorce. And in this book, there's a man who dies, and he gets a bus tour of hell and then later heaven. And C.S. Lewis' description of hell isn't like what we often imagine it. And as I'm about to describe it to you, please understand, I'm not dictating to you doctrine from Scripture and C.S. Lewis's book. That's not the point of his book. He's not trying to tell you what hell is really like. He's describing hell in a way to prove a point. And so in this book, as the bus goes down to hell, the man sees nothing but basically an empty, endless, infinite void. There's like houses here and there and little buildings, but they're all scattered. There's no community. There's no cluster of buildings. There's no cluster of homes close together enough to, to call it a village or a city. Everything is spread out. And, and in this part of the book, Napoleon is mentioned. And Napoleon has moved so far out that you'd have to walk for millions of years to finally get to him. Now, Napoleon does have a nice mansion in this book, a really nice mansion, multiple stories. It's in that old French style. But the thing is, is that that mansion offers no shelter from the rain and no security or protection from anybody else. Napoleon built it himself because in this place, all you have to do is think about it, and it's there. Napoleon was so set in his way that he would do anything to get it, get what he wanted in this world. And so even after death, he continues to pursue and pursue his own possessions until he's completely by himself, alone and isolated, cut off from the God from whom all real things come from. Now he's alone with nothing but his own imagination. So right now then, I want us to think about that. Think about what greed does, and I want you to ask yourself a question. What are the things you want right now? What are the things you want? And maybe you're saying to yourself, Pastor, you're missing me because I don't really want a whole lot of stuff. I don't even have a list on Amazon. I don't want anything. You know, I'm good. I don't even have a birthday list. It drives my family crazy. Well, if that's you, then, then think back to the things that you have wanted in your life. We are guilty of every sin, and so greed has touched all of our lives. So even if you have to go all the way back to the days of when you wanted that red rider BB gun, go and do it. And think about all the things that you've wanted in your life, and think about all the things that you want now. I'll give you an example from my own list. You see, for some time now, I've wanted a, a kayak or a canoe. Either one is fine. I don't need a motor. I don't need a big boat. I would just like to be out on the water close to the current. I really enjoy kayaking and canoeing. I'd love to cast a line out on a lake inside of a canoe. And you know what? If I was in a canoe or even a kayak, I could take some of my family along with me. But that's the problem. Right there. Is that I find myself caught between pursuing this, this hobby, which is well and good. If you have a canoe or a kayak, great. Go for it. If you want to sell one, talk to me later. <laughs> But all of our goods come at a cost. This activity might remove me from my family for a little while, perhaps a bit too long. And if you had all the possessions that you wanted on your list, if you had everything that you've ever wanted, all of a sudden, right now, what time would you have left for the people in your life? 
What time would you have left for anything else but for taking care of and enjoying those things that you have? And it happens in relationships, too. Greed can exist there as well, and greed can isolate in relationships. You know, maybe you're, maybe you're wanting one day to have, like, you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and one day that would turn into a marriage, and you're thinking about kids and a family and how wonderful that would be. Or maybe you're thinking about your life, and you just wish that, that your own relationships with your children and your grandchildren could be repaired. Because maybe on one end of the scale, you're looking and you're seeing all these pictures on your social media and just out around in the world of happy couples together and you watch their families grow and you want that. Or you're thinking about families that can gather together in a place like this, multiple generations together on Christmas and Easter, and you notice that, well, they seem to get along for at least an hour or so. What would it be to have that? And all of these relationships are good. We are created to be in community. We are created to desire communication, connection, conversation. But I want to challenge you and ask you, why are you seeking those things? How much does the chorus of I, 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 and my, my, my come up when you think about the things that you want or the relationships you're pursuing? Or are you pursuing those because... You genuinely, genuinely want to be a part of somebody else's journey. You genuinely want to give some of your life, some of your time, some of your energy for the sake of somebody else without an interest of your own. At one point, hopefully we all get there. Jesus teaches us that this false hope of putting life in our possessions will fail us in the end because in the end, those possessions will not be able to put life back into us. You fool. Jesus says this word, and it's a rare word for him. After he finishes this story, or as he closes the story, he says that, fool, to this rich man who has built up everything, who had this harvest and is thinking about retiring, God says, fool, this very night, your life is going to be taken from you. And you know what? I think we have kind of a bad setup for this story because as we read through our Bibles, all of our Bibles have these subtitles, right? So if you're reading this story in your Bible, you would have already read the subtitle for the story, and that is The Rich Fool. So as you're going along, you're hearing this, you're knowing the other shoe is going to drop on this man soon because it's a small paragraph too, so it's not going to be long. But soon you realize it's going to happen, and so you're just waiting for it. You're not being drawn in. But put yourself in the shoes of the crowd. Jesus tells a story about a man who has a harvest. He's already rich, and the harvest is more than what he could imagine. What would he do? What is he going to do? Well, that's a question we'd all ask ourselves in that situation. Ah, he'll tear down barns and build up bigger ones and store it and save it. Well, that's what we would do, right? Right? I mean, that makes sense. You come across a windfall, you don't blow it. I mean, we're not like some person who asks for his father's inheritance and then spends it on wild living and has to come crawling back to his dad. Oddly specific Bible reference there. But anyhow, so we're not like that. We would save it. I mean, who knows? Maybe there's a bad harvest next year. That's wise and smart. And who isn't working so that they can finally just put their feet up in the end? And who isn't a little bit terrified by the fact that they may not happen for them? Does this make sense? You fool, this very night your life will be demanded 
view. I have to think, in some way, this is theory, but as the man who interrupted Jesus is hearing him tell this story, I wonder if he isn't seeing the story of his own father's life playing out in front of him. He asked Jesus to divide the, inherit to divide the inheritance between him and his brother, right? That means that his dad has died, okay? So it also means that, that his dad did not seem to leave much of a plan behind, which might also tell us that his dad really wasn't thinking too much about other people as he was amassing and collecting his own possessions and wealth. Perhaps this man who's asking Jesus to intervene in his life for the sake of a few possessions did so because his dad left a mess behind for him. Thanks be to God then, that you have a father that is completely different from that. You have a father that is not careless with his creation. He's not careless with the things of this world. He knows exactly what you need and gives it and even gives a little bit more. Thanks be to God then that when we recognize this, then we find abundance. We discover our generosity and we turn and we praise the God from whom all blessings flow. There's a social worker named Florence and she works in an Appalachian region. She works with a family that has this rundown house right on the edge of the woods. And one day, this family that's barely, barely scraping by, the father manages to shoot a bear that has come onto their property. And he butchers the bear. And they scrape together all the jars that they have, they even trade a few of their possessions to get more jars so that they can can all this bear meat. This family will now have protein even in the midst of the deepest winter. They're going to have what they need to eat. It's a tremendous blessing because that food might not have come from anywhere else. And so when Florence, the social worker, visits this family and hears about the story of, of how the father shot the bear and butchered it, the, the father is standing there and he takes a can of bear meat in his hand and he extends it out to her and he says, take some. Florence, she's got a full-time job. She's fine. She can't take that meat from him. And she says so. And he says, no. And he shakes it in his hand and says, here, take it. She says again, I can't. And he looks at her and he says, look, just because we ain't got much doesn't mean we're poor. What's the difference? He explains, well, even when you don't have enough and you're still willing to give some, then you're not poor. But if you have enough or even more than enough, and you can't give anything away, then you're poor. Jesus came in poverty. I mean, he had no place to lay his head. As he tells us, foxes have their holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest, no place to sleep. This Son of Man had to depend upon what was inside of a young man's lunchbox when there were 5,000 people who were hungry. He didn't have that food in his pocket when he fed the 5,000. It came to him from a boy who offered him five loaves and two fish. And you know what? There was one time he was pressed to pay taxes, and he didn't have it on him. And it took a miracle for him to pay those taxes. He asked for somebody to bring a fish out of the water, and there was a coin in the fish's mouth. When you're Jesus, things are easier that way. <laughs> he came in poverty, but he is not poor to you. He is not poor 
towards you. Consider his unselfish love. Look at how he has given you the very blood inside of his veins to shed, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Look at how he dumped out his life on the ground so that you might have life. He has given you everything, and he doesn't begrudge it either. He came with nothing, and yet he is so very rich to all of us, to you. His giving is his abundance. And if you want to have abundance, it's not about going out and making more money or finding more stuff. It's about finding him and holding on to him. Jesus separates us from our love of possessions. That play about possessions goes on, and the whole world shows up to see it. And it's the same old script and the same old dialogue. Here comes greed on the stage, saying to you once again, oh, if you could have just a little bit more of that. Oh, there's some life in this. Or, you know what, you just need some more cushion. You need some more security before you can give away some stuff. While the makeup on greed's face continues to run, and it's costume is rent with holes. So many still buy it hook, line, and sinker. We've bought it hook, line, and sinker, and we would still be there watching this play if Jesus didn't interrupt, if Jesus didn't come down into the audience and take us in the hand and lead us hand by hand with us as his disciples. Learning that all good comes from him because all good is him. We find this warmth and this life in our hands when we hold on to Jesus. What, what can you give that Jesus cannot restore? Is it your, your money or, or your time or your energy or even your life? What do you have that he cannot replenish and give you an even greater measure than what you had before? Come and learn from him. Look out to those in your world who are in need and give to them with living hands. Amen.